cunning, deception, manipulation, pushing your own agenda, favoritism. The story is as old as the story of Jacob in Genesis. Dave Wurtzen takes us to Genesis chapter 27 in our series on fathers and sons to look at a con who generated the 12 tribes of Israel. Michael was really a gifted preacher. He could hold an audience in the palm of his hand. He also had incredible administration skills. Like a lot of those that can speak publicly, they really don't know how to mobilize people. Michael was the kind of a guy that could mobilize people with the visions that he had. And he was very brilliant. He, He did really well in school. Michael had only one problem. He was only second in command in the Christian organization where he was serving. You see, he had a boss that was over him, and Michael, when he was face-to-face with that boss, he had nothing but praise for that boss. Man, he would tell everybody how great this person that was over him was in the organization. He would have parties for that boss. Face-to-face, he had nothing but good things to say about that boss. But behind the scenes, In the office, in their organization, when he met in small groups, he would be saying, you know, when problems came up, he would say, if if I were at the wheel, it could be different. Slowly but surely, he was the person that face-to-face, Michael, would really praise his boss, but behind the scenes, he would be conning. He would be deceiving because he couldn't rest in letting the Lord be the one that opened up the door of opportunity right when he wanted to have it. Michael had a son, a beautiful son, and this son grew, and he became gifted like his dad. You see, finally the opportunity came that Michael's boss decided it was time for him to kind of step aside, and he actually gave Michael that position that he coveted. Michael carefully began to push away the children of his former boss that's now taking kind of a back seat, and he got them out of the organization, and his son, his own son, grew, and he had some of the same gifts that his father had, and it was time for Michael to put him into the prime ministry of that Christian organization, which was their daily TV show that went nationwide on one of the leading TV stations. Michael's already, he's making the announcements, going to put his son in that position. And then everything fell like a house of cards. It turned out that his son, this gifted son that had married a beautiful wife, was carrying on an affair with the editor of their TV show. And suddenly, all that Michael had worked to get and all the conniving and all the deception and all the -the behind-the-scenes strings he had pulled, and now his son was publicly disgraced in the organization. He's going to have to leave the organization. Where is God in the midst of that? Have you ever met somebody like Michael? Have you ever wondered, like, what is God doing? Maybe you're a child. Maybe your own father was like some of that. Or maybe you know somebody. Maybe you've been in churches where you have those kind of things going on. Where is God in the midst of all that? Well, I want you to know that the kind of deception, the kind of behind-the-scenes maneuvering is as old as Father Jacob. We want to turn in the Bible to Genesis chapter 25. Jacob was a con artist, but he generated the 12 tribes. And we want to learn today as we begin studying the birth of Isaac and the birth of Jacob and his brother Esau, we want to begin to see the story of how the Lord took a con artist, 
But over time, he ended up really using him to become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the goals that I have for you this morning is I want you to get excited about really reading the Bible again. I want you to read it in the flow of the story. That I want to just whet your appetite for all the life reality. You dads and you grandfathers can learn incredible things. You can put an old head on even an old shoulder. You can have maturity and you can put an old head on young shoulders. So look at Genesis chapter 25 because the story begins like this. It says in verse 21 of chapter 25 that Isaac prayed to the Lord. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, that is, Rebekah said, what is this happening to me? And so she inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples are within you. From within you, they will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the other will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, and the first to come out was Red. In fact, his name was Edom Red. Okay? And his whole body was hairy, and in Hebrew, Esau sounds like hairy. So she named him Esau, so they named him by that name, Harry. Can you imagine having a, your firstborn son every time you see him? Harry, how are you? And Red. Some of you, we've used the name in Texas, Red. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. He's always trying to get ahead of his brother. Even in the womb, he's trying to pull his brother back so he can get to the front. So they named him Yaakov, which in Hebrew is the word for heel. So when you hear the name Jacob, you're actually hearing heel. Isaac was six years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. This is the beginning of the story, a very powerful story. As you're studying the patriarchs, this is a story of Jacob and his brother Esau. Who's the firstborn? Everybody tell me. Esau. Who's the secondborn? Who would you expect to be first? You'd expect the firstborn, Esau, to be first. Now, the very first thing that I, I want you to underline when we think about our series about passing on the torch and his father's passing on the traditions and heritage of godliness and trying to see the Holy Spirit use us to generate spiritual life in the life of our kids, the very first thing I want you to see in this story is it says that Rebecca was barren. Now, in the modern culture, did you read that? Is that a blessing or a curse? See, it depends upon which story you're listening to. I want especially you dads and you grandfathers, it's very important that every single day that you're reading the Bible in the flow of the story. You need to start, like, for example, in the beginning, like you could start with the beginning of the story of Jacob, where we just started today. And you can read all the way through the end of Genesis, and you'll get... The story of the book of Genesis. And what I want to use this time that we have in my teaching you is to give you the tools you need. So the very first question I ask, in a story, there are good guys and bad guys. There's things that are good. Is the fact that Rebecca is grieving the fact that she's barren? In the story, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is the fact that Rebecca is barren in the story that we're telling, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Now, your little girls are going to grow up and go to college. And lots of girls that I knew in the last several years that go to college, they're taught in college that it's not a good thing to get pregnant. Do you know that? 
They're taught that one of the worst things that can happen to them is for them to get pregnant. And they need to be really careful not to get pregnant because if they get pregnant, it's going to keep them from being able to compete equally with men in jobs and they won't be able to have all those trips and all those houses and all that money. Is that true? How many of you have ever heard that kind of another story? See, every one of you are listening to stories. Your kids, as they grow older, are listening to stories. Every movie you go to, every book you read, every person that you meet, you're all involved in stories. And I want you to be perceptive that when I was in college, for example, they were beginning to tell a story, it's not a good thing for girls to have babies. So you need to get rid of them. You abort them if you get pregnant. You use everything you can not to have kids. And the worst thing that can happen is to get married and then suddenly they have a slew of kids. And what I want you to see is that that you're going to decide which story you listen to. One of the things that's really great in our church family is you haven't bought into, for the most part, my family of believers haven't bought into the idea that being barren is a good thing. Most of you feel that, no, we really want, when we get married, we want to have kids. In fact, in our church family, some have struggled to have kids. Some are still struggling to have kids. And what did Isaac do? Isaac prayed. He prayed for his wife. Husbands, you want to be a good father? Well, you're not going to be able to be a father unless your wife is able to give birth to kids. And so one of the things you need to do is you need to pray for them. How many think that's a good thing? Like one of the greatest blessings you can give, you're all going to live your life believing a story. This story is telling you that it's really a good thing. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, it was a good thing for a wife to conceive and give birth to a kid. And now what I want you to know is you're going to decide, do you think it's still a good thing? And if we really believe it's a good thing, then it's husband's Some of you are younger husbands. As we think of our extended church family, some of you that are older in our church family, like myself, and we've already raised our kids, we need to be praying for younger couples. In fact, how many of you right now can think of some younger couples that really want to have kids and they haven't been able to have them, okay? So right now, let's just take a quiet time. And Isaac prayed for Rebecca, his wife. So let's just take a moment and let's, obey and act in the story with Isaac. How many of you agree it's a blessing if you have a couple that knows the Lord Jesus, they're married, and they'd like to have kids, to join Isaac, this ancient daddy, who's now up in heaven, interceding with us. Let's pray for some of those in our church family that really want to have conceived. I have some precious young friends that are agonizing over this. This is serious stuff. And some of them we prayed and they've conceived and then they've lost the baby. One of the other things we can pray is that adoption had become a major thing, but you have blessed me so much. And I've been able, over the years, been involved with so many of you that have adopted kids. We started that in the very beginning of our church with, with Dan and Jeannie Bauckham that were one of our founding couples with Carol and Virginia and many others. And we were adopting kids with our founding fathers and our family at the very beginning. And to see that multiply, some of you are committed to incredible ministries in that. So let's just take a moment. We'll just take a quiet time. You just bow your head and let's pray that the Lord would bring fruitfulness and that he would begin to fill the households of some families that like Rebecca, they're barren and they really would like to have children. 
Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're responding to our prayers. And I thank you that you're going to multiply the healing and the fruitfulness. And oh, Lord, I just pray that you would cause your spirit to help us to continue to cherish our kids. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we move to the next thing in the story, lest you think, well, the Bible is really old and antiquated, Caucasian whites are having less than two kids for the most part. Okay? You know what that means? It means you we're going to be gone. Demographically, you have to have about 2.3 kids just to pass on. So all of you that are deciding not to have kids because you want to have money, well, you'll have your car, you'll have your house, you'll have your clothes, you'll have your trips, and then you'll disappear from the human race. That's the truth. All of Europe is really upset about this. When I was in Paris, they're building children's parks all over Paris trying to get French young people to have kids. You know why? Because... The population is shrinking. They've got to keep bringing in. We all have these debates about, you know, the borders being porous and stuff. One of the things that's sustaining American culture is not births, but bringing people from the outside. They do a lot of things that we don't like to do. Those are the dirty little secrets about being a progressive modern person that doesn't think kids are good anymore. So you decide whether you think the values that we're learning from God's word are true. And it doesn't mean that everybody needs to have 24 kids. But it does mean that we're a people that really honors that. That makes sense? And I really want you to know, some of you that are younger, and as you talk to younger kids, when I was in college, Mary and I were taught it was a sin to have kids because the earth was polluted. Lake Erie was smelly, and fish couldn't live in it. And that was a symbol, just like Lake Erie, Lake Ontario. The whole world was going to fill up with pollution. And we couldn't have kids because they would all breathe mercury, and they'd all be born with six eyes and three legs. So therefore, we shouldn't have any kids. And also, we were going to run out of food. And to make matters really worse is the bomb could go off, and we'd all be gone. So the most ethical thing you could do is not to have any kids. Well, I am really glad that Mary and I decided, forget that. God's still telling us to be fruitful and multiply. And I just want to share with you, having four kids and ten grandkids at my age is one of the greatest gifts I have. And I could care less about my house, about cars, but man, I love those grandkids. Does that sound like God's word knows what it's talking about? What I'm trying to do, you all listen to stories. Your kids, all your kids go to a university and they're being told stories. What I'm trying to illustrate to you is how you defend your story and how you listen carefully to the story that's controlling your life. And I want the word of God story to control their life. By the way, how do I know this is a valid thing? Because all the way through God's word, Rebecca was barren and Isaac prayed and she gave birth to Esau and Jacob and they became fruitful. Jacob's going to produce the whole promised line. Esau's going to become a great powerful nation called Edom, which gives Israel a lot of trouble in the Old Testament. But I also want you to know when you get to the book of 1 Samuel, you're going to begin the book of 1 Samuel with Hannah, who is barren. And this time her husband doesn't pray for her, she prays. And the Lord gives her baby Samuel. 
So this theme of the barren woman, that's how you test it. And then you get to the story of Jesus at Christmas time, and you have this old Elizabeth with Zechariah. And what's wrong with Elizabeth? She can't have any kids. And she prays, and she's asking the Lord, and the Lord gives her baby John the Baptist that heralds the Lord. And what I just illustrated to you is what I want you to learn to do. You need to read the Bible in the flow of the story. And you can test. Like, you don't have to buy that I said barrenness isn't a good thing, that God says be fruitful and multiply. You can start in Genesis and go all the way through to Revelation. And if you find out somewhere in the story that God thinks abortion is really a great thing, and God thinks it's really, really good if we decide not to have any kids, if you tell me where God changed his mind about that, then we'll follow that story. But I got news for you. I don't think you're going to find that in Genesis to Revelation. Everybody following me? And that's what's going to make God's word come alive to you. The second thing you need to be really careful of, watch out for favoritism. Once those kids come and the Lord blesses your womb, every one of you dads and moms in this room, and even with your grandkids, you need to watch out for favoritism. Now, if anybody should have known about this, It should be us, because look at the story. It tells us here, and look what it says. The boys grew up. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing, right? And Esau became a skillful hunter. How many of you guys like Esau? How many of you grandfathers like big, rugged, strong, hairy, masculine hunters? Come on. Yes, a lot of you do, okay? He grew up and became a skillful hunter. A man of the open country. Man, this is a Texas boy, only he's living way back in Palestine. This guy is the one, he learns how to, how to shoot his gun early. And man, he's out, he doesn't want to go to school, he wants to go hunting in the field. Man, he is, he is the hunter's hunter. That's Esau. He's a great, big, rugged, masculine guy, okay? That's the way the story is told. Now, his brother, Yaakov, the heel, was a, and the word, the NIV translated quiet, but the word is literally here a very interesting word. It's tom, which is the word for integrity. And, what's, and this shows you how skillfully this story is written. Because one of the qualities in all of your lives is I want you to have integrity. And what integrity means is that when I get to the core of your life, when I reach really down inside of your life, I want you to be committed to God's promise. Like, I want you at the center of your being. You might mess up in a lot of other areas, but when I reach to what really determines what you are as a person, I want you to be a person that is wholly and completely committed to the promise that God made to Adam and Eve to provide a great serpent slayer, to take it through the line of Seth, to come to the promise of Abraham that we've talked about the last time we were together, where God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you the seed. You're going to become a great multitude of people, but you're ultimately going to produce the great serpent slayer, the seed, the great male deliverer that will destroy the serpent and destroy the curse of death. And I want you to know that through that seed, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. That's where we are in this story. This Isaac is the son of Abraham who's going to carry on that line that's going to produce that great serpent slayer. And what the storyteller does is Jacob is not a man of integrity at this point. He is a con artist. And you need to understand this because the story of the Bible is much more intriguing. We like stories where, man, this is good, this is evil, everything's really clear. The Bible tells a story that's the way life is. It's the way some of you are. Some of you right now, you con, you trick, 
Man, I asked your banker about the way you conduct business, and to be honest with you, like I've got some friends that I'm not going to come to church in Midlothian because those people are lousy with finances. And they cheat. I wouldn't trust them at all. Well, I got to work with them to realize, hey, God isn't finished with them yet. Jacob was a con artist. Jacob was a, was a deceiver. But the text signals you that his mama understands he's a man, not of quietness, but he's a man of, and it uses the word integrity. And that signals you what the whole life of Jacob eventually is going to be. Because in the end, unlike Esau, in the end, Jacob really believes the promise. Do you? He does all kinds of deceptive, cunning things, but at the bottom line, and he paid for those things. But when you come to the core of Jacob's life, deep inside, he has integrity. He loves the promise. But I want you to see that Isaac and Rebekah set up tremendous problems in their family because Isaac loved this rugged Esau but Jacob was loved by his mom, Rebekah. Why was that so? In fact, what's interesting, it says literally here that Isaac loved Esau because he put wild game in his mouth. The Hebrew just says wild game in mouth. You dads and grandfathers, how do you relate to your kids? You moms, how do you relate to your kids? Isaac related to his kid. Why did he like Esau? Because Esau put food in his stomach. Okay, why do you love your kids? Is that really the way that I should father kids? That I'll show favor to them, the one that feeds me really good. The ones that feeds my ego. Like if you're, a, if you're an athlete like I was, then it's really, really easy for me to go to all the little league games and watch my kids that were good in athletics, then I favor them. But if they're not good in athletics, then what do I do? Because they don't remind me of those days when I used to throw the passes, when I used to have the cheerleaders cheering for me. This is very real stuff. Little league season starting up. You dads that you wanted to play college baseball. Some of you had dreams of being in the major leagues, and now some of you have sons and grandsons. They're really good at that. Well, man, you show all kinds of favoritism for them. And all that you're doing is you're living your ego through your kids. That's the worst thing you can do to your kids. So I want you to be convicted of this. The Bible tells an honest story. Isaac showed favoritism to Esau because Esau was a rugged man that put venison in his mouth. Why did Rebekah love Jacob? All you ladies like mama's boy. So the kid that hangs around with you, like you ladies all want to be listened to. You want time. The greatest thing you husbands can give your wife is time and an ear. And Jacob lived in the tents. In the ancient world, if you're Bedouins, where do the women hang out? Are the women out there hunting, like in Hunger Games and all that? No, in this culture, in the patriarchal times, the women are in the tents. Who's hanging out with them? All you ladies like your children, especially your sons, who hang out with you. And some of you ladies begin to build your life. Your husband doesn't hang out with you your son does. So you turn your son into a surrogate. And that's one of the worst things you can do. That's terrible. It'll destroy your son. In fact, for your son to become a man, he needs to get away from mom. And if you know anything about the story of Jacob, did Jacob have to leave his mama? 
Yeah, in the story of Jacob, he has to leave his mom and he never sees her again. That's how the story unfolds. And the story is teaching you. He says, you go home today, wives, moms, you watch out, ask yourself, am I holding this son in? Am I keeping him in my tent? Because he is meeting emotional needs and I'm not pushing him out. Those are really powerful things. And those of you that your grandparents, you need to be teaching your kids this stuff. This is the wisdom of the ages. Human nature. One of the things I want you to get a hold of today is the clothes change, the locations change, the time changes, but human nature doesn't ever change. What I teach you from God's word about the character of God and about the character of human beings, about the way that husbands and wives relate to their kids, things we learn in these powerful narratives in the Bible are not going to ever change. And that's why I want you to read him the way you'd read any other story, because so many of you are taking little bits and pieces. You'll never understand the dynamics. Like, you don't ever track, well, what happened? Because Rebecca showed favoritism to Jacob, and Isaac showed favoritism to Esau. You'll never track what happened unless you keep reading the story. And I want to especially encourage some of you that have been raised in this stuff, because the brand new believers that I'm teaching right now, they are so excited because they haven't ever read the Bible. So it's like, man, they start in Genesis and they read all the way through. They just keep reading and reading and reading, and they get more and more excited because they weren't exposed to Sunday school where they took little bitty pictures every once in a while. And they didn't put it together. In our church family, we want to help people to find their story in his story. We want every kid that's raised in our church, and you're going to have to help us do that. We want every kid to know where they are in the redemptive story, that they're learning how you put God's story together, that they can't get out of here without knowing what was happening in the family of Isaac and Jacob and Esau and how the favoritism that Isaac and Rebecca showed to their two boys produced terrible conflict so they can be protected from doing that in their family. What happens? Well, look what it says. It says the boys grew up. Esau became a hunter. Isaac loved him. Rebekah loved Jacob. But once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He's the hunter. He comes in. He hunted all day long. Man, he's been trekking through the fields. Doesn't get any game. That's what happens when you go hunting sometimes. Sometimes you just don't get the game, right? So he comes in, man, how many of you have ever come in after a day of hunting, you haven't eaten all day, you haven't had good water, and man, you think you're going to die. Anybody ever experienced that? All of you have at one time or another. You feel like you're going to die. That's where Esau is. Then it says this. His brother Jacob says, quick, Esau says to Jacob, quick, let me have some of the red stew. What's his name? Red. Jacob's smart. His big brother's name is red, so he makes some red stew. Man, this is... This is Texas chili par excellence. That is why he also was called Edom. So he's hairy and red. Jacob, and the hair isn't in the stew, by the way. Just red, good chili. First, sell me your birthright, Jacob says. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me if I die, in other words? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him. Esau swore an oath to Jacob, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and then he got up and he left. So Esau despised his birthright. Remember what I told you about Esau and Jacob? Esau is a man, and some of your sons are going to be like Esau. 
They live just for now. They live for hunting. They live for fishing. They live for trips to Colorado. They live for all that that life can bring. They'll be at Cabela's every chance they get. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. In fact, we're going to have lots of stories in the Bible. David, when he's a teenager, is going to be the anointed that kills Goliath, and he's a warrior. And so he buys all the good weapons at Cabela's. That's that's why I want you to track this story well. It's not the fact that Esau was a hunter and Jacob is more of a shepherd tent man. That's not what's wrong here. What's wrong is that Jacob showed you that he lives just for the hunting. And in the years that I've ministered with men, I have some men that live just for the hunting. And you're going to have to ask yourself, like, that's the story that you follow. You read Field and Stream every chance you get. You go on every hunting trip. And I've been doing this a long time. So I remember seeing guys at DT's Cafe in the midst of all the smoke who would tell me all their exploits of killing the elk, trumping all over the mountains of southwestern Colorado in the elk season and nailing a great big elk. And I love those stories. When I go to Bozeman, they tell me, like I told about, you know, shooting a deer down here. Man, for the next hour and a half, when I get through speaking the message, all those Montana guys, one guy especially said, hey, Wurtzum, you need to come up and hunt with me. Man, the first day elk season, I just go out by that river where you catch fish when you come up here and speak in the summer. I just lean against a tree with my 30-odd six, and man, a big elk comes up, wham! And then he goes on for the next hour and a half, tells me stories about there's nothing wrong with any of that. But if you live for it, if that's the bottom line of your life, then in the end, you're going to have nothing. Because there's going to come a day when you're not going to be able to hike those mountains. In fact, most of the guys that I started out with at DT telling me that story, now they're having hip replacement surgery. And some of them don't take, so they can't go hunting at all. Some of them can't see anymore. So what are you going to do then? See, that's what's wrong with living. And this is something dads and grandfathers, you need to get across to your kids. Our kids are being told in the American culture that you live just for this too. You just live for good food. You just live for good hunting. You just live for the great experiences of this life. And what we as dads and grandfathers especially need to be really powerfully communicating to your kids It's not going to be good enough. It's not going to be good enough. Because in the end, living for the stew is going to come to a time where you don't even have the taste buds to appreciate the red chili. And that's why you need someone that even when your physical body is all worn out, he's only just begun Because he's going to give you a body where you're going to be able to enjoy things even better than all those hunting trips you went on here. That's what we need to be communicating to the next generation. And the unbelievable thing is, though Jacob was a con artist, the reason he conned his brother is he wanted the birthright. You know the other famous story a few chapters later. Remember the story when Isaac was blind? 
and he couldn't see, and, and he tells Esau, you go out, I'm going to give you the blessing. And Rebecca goes and gets some goat skins and puts them on her son Jacob's arms so when Isaac feels his arms, he'll have those hairy arms. It'll be like Esau. Rebecca's really smart. She dresses him in Esau's hunting garment so it smells like Esau so that when Isaac, the blind father, pulls his son Jacob close to him, it smells like Esau. Man, it's a really powerful story. Esau's out there. He's having trouble finding game. Rebecca takes some goat. And she blends. She knows exactly how to do it to make it taste like the incredible game that Esau brings even better. And man, Isaac loves to have food in his stomach. So his youngest son comes and says, I am Esau. And the story is told how, man, it doesn't sound like Esau. Says, yeah, are you Esau? And Jacob lies. I am. Terrible guy deceiving his old blind father. And he says, well, come closer. And he lets his father, blind father, feel his arms. And he hears his father say, hey, this feels like Esau. And then he says, let me hug you, son. And Isaac pulls Jacob close to him. And he goes, because everyone that's blind uses their smell. They can tell incredible things by what they do with their nose. And Isaac says, It sounds like Jacob, but it feels like Esau, and it smells like Esau. It must be Esau, and he pours out his blessing on Jacob. He says, you're going to be the brother that rules. Many people are going to come from you. Esau comes in right after that, and his father realized what has happened. And Esau comes unglued. Esau just breaks down and cries. He says, Father, don't you have any other blessing for me? Because favoritism produces terrible, terrible conflict between brothers. Every one of you dads in this room need to bless each one of your kids. You say, hey, well, Dave, the ultimate father in the universe, he chose Jacob before they were even born. That's true. But you need to understand something. God didn't choose Jacob because Jacob put good venison in his mouth. God didn't choose Jacob because he was a powerful, masculine guy. Why did he choose Jacob? What's the purpose of the promise? The purpose of the promise is through Jacob, the ultimate ruler will come. Not Jacob and the Israelites, but the ultimate ruler is is Jesus, the ultimate son of David. And what's the ultimate son of David going to do for all the people in the world? He's going to bring a blessing. You see, God's choice is not some arbitrary choice that excludes you. Esau didn't have to be excluded. In fact, the literal physical Esau that was the man Esau, I don't know for sure in the flow of the story. I don't know where Esau is right now. What I do know That in the story, he gets furious with his brother. Jacob has to leave, and he's gone for 20 years, and and his mama dies, Rebecca dies. And when Jacob comes back with all of these riches and all of these kids, what's going to become the founding of Israel? Esau comes with a whole gang, like Robin Hood. He comes with all of his mighty men. And you think he's going to wipe Jacob out. And Jacob sends all of his family across the Jordan River, and he stays on the east side of Jordan. And that night, he's praying. And the Bible tells an incredible thing. It says that he wrestled with a man that night. He wrestled all night long with that man. And as the dawn started coming up, 
The man says, let me go. Let me go. And Jacob says, no. I'm not going to let you go unless I know your name and unless you bless me. And that man wrestling just touches Jacob's hip. And for the rest of Jacob's life, he walked with a limp. But he says in the morning, I saw the face of God, and he let me live. And Jacob, the man who had Bethel when he was running to Haran, saw the stairway that reached to the heavens, and the great I am said, I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to be with you. And I will bless you. And Jacob becomes the father of Judah, who becomes the father of David, who becomes the father that leads eventually to Jesus, who's the one that told Nathaniel that I'm the latter. I'm the latter. Jacob, your forefather, saw a staircase that reached to the heaven with the great I am at the top of the ladder. But Jesus says, I'm the staircase. I'm the I am at the top of the ladder. And I didn't just stay on an escalator where angels are going back and forth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And our Savior Jesus is the ultimate son of Jacob. That Jacob showed us when he wrestled with God, that's what he really cared about. So as grandfathers and fathers today and moms and dads and kids, we got to realize, number one, our heavenly daddy still loves kids. And we still need to be praying. I want to pray that Midlothian Bible Church will be praying that we'll be fruitful and multiply. Because God still loves kids. And he loves dads and he loves grandfathers that pray with precious wives that want to be mothers. And they open their hearts to the kids. And we expand that even into reaching around the world. That's what our church family needs to be about. Second of all, this morning we take the heart as we leave this room. We're going to be careful about showing favoritism. Dads, it's easy to love the boys and the girls that are like you. But you need to open your heart to each one of your precious kids. You need to connect with the one that isn't like you. And if you can realize how powerful favoritism is and how it will divide your family, read the story of Jacob and Esau. It destroyed these brothers for many, many years. The third thing, you're going to decide, am I going to be like Jacob and am I going to be like Esau? In the end of the story, Esau came with a band to kill his brother. But instead, He ran and hugged his brother. Michael, that guy I started out with, and Michael's son. Michael's son had to lead the organization, but he didn't leave his wife. And he repented. And he turned away from the conning and the deception of lust. And he was able to build the kingdom of God in another organization, in another place, and continue this story of redemption. His dad, Michael, as he grew older, turned away from all that behind-the-scenes manipulation and learned to become a man of integrity. That's what we mean about being caught up in his story, a story of redemption, where con artists like Jacob can wrestle with God and they can win because they believe in the promise.